Hi, everybody, and welcome to Life TK, the podcast where we talk to women writers, editors, and journalists in their 30s, 40s, 50s, and beyond about the jobs they did when they were in their 20s. My name is Amanda Woitis, and I'm your host. My interview today is with Caitlin Kelly, an award-winning journalist who has been a reporter for the New York Daily News, the Globe and Mail, which is the New York Times of Canada, and the Montreal Gazette. By the way, Life TK went international this week. To my knowledge, Caitlin is my first guest with an international footprint. She's Canadian, and yes, we do briefly discuss hockey in this episode. Caitlin lives in New York State and is a freelance journalist, writing coach, and PR strategist. Her stories have appeared in the New York Times, Forbes, Salon, The Wall Street Journal, USA Today, Marie Claire, among others. And she's the author of two books, one called Mauled, about working retail, and another called Blown Away, about American women and firearms. A piece you can find on her website that I think you'll love is a profile in the Times titled Backstage and Now the Boss, quote, the only girl in the building. And it's about a woman named Jennifer Diaz, who is the first female head carpenter of Local One of the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees. I found it really interesting. Caitlin has won a Canadian National Magazine Award for Humor. She's traveled to more than 40 countries. I could go on. She's so accomplished. But let's get into the interview. I think you're really going to love it. So when you graduated college, you were freelancing. And how did you sort of make your career in that, and then how did you land that first job at the newspaper? Yeah. Um, I grew up in a freelance family. So my father was a filmmaker, totally self-employed. My stepmother wrote for television, totally self-employed. My mom was a journalist, pretty much self-employed. So nobody in our family had paychecks, pensions, paid vacations, sick days, um, and that, as I realized as I got older and older and moved in and out of, you know, full-time jobs and back and forth to freelance, that was a huge advantage because I knew you could do it. You know, people in film make more money than people in writing journalism, but if you're, you know, smart, persistent, talented, you know, all the things that we need to be at really at any age, uh, at least I knew that that was possible. And uh, I started, which is crazy but true, so I was in high school. And um, I really wanted to be a photographer. That was my first goal, was not to be a writer, but to be a photographer or a photojournalist. And knowing that, uh, a friend of my father's gave me a Minolta, a good little 35-millimeter film camera back in the days of film. And I went and took lots and lots of photographs. And there was a magazine in Toronto, which is the media capital of Canada, called Toronto Calendar, which had one large photograph on the cover of every issue. It was a listings magazine. So sort of like a timeout magazine. Yeah, yeah. And they would have an annual contest, and anybody could enter. And my my dad's friend said, hey, why don't you enter? I sold three photographs when I was in high school. So I'm 17 years old. I've had three cover photographs in a major magazine going, well, damn, I think I can freelance. 
uh, and it was a hundred dollars. And I can tell you, back in the day, that was a lot. It's still a decent amount of money um, yeah. for a high school kid. Yeah, and so yeah. <laughs> it was a huge. Yeah, and but it was a huge affirmation. Like, wow, you can compete with other people, and maybe be good at this. A really crucial element is confidence, and um, you know, when you grow up around freelance family that's doing okay, you understand instinctively that if you're not confident, you're not going to eat because you're constantly selling your creativity. You're constantly explaining your ideas to people who have full-time jobs and don't really understand why don't you have a full-time job, <laughs> you know. So you have yeah. to have enough confidence to say, this is a life that makes sense for me. This is a life I like, and and, and I'm fine with that. And I'm not going to sell every idea or every photograph. That's the way it is. And so you learn to save money. You learn to not take on enormous amounts of debt if you can humanly avoid that. You know, you buy a, a decent used car. You don't buy a huge house with a huge mortgage because when the work dries up, you would have to leave it. <laughs> you know, okay. so I learned those I learned those lessons. So I started university. I went to University of Toronto, which is a very large school. So again, you have to be really self-directed. It is not... Um, at least it wasn't for me, nurturing, nobody noticed me, you know, you're just a one more person. And so, again, okay, well, and I was living alone. I was 19, living in an apartment by myself, and I had to pay my bills. My family had sort of gone off to do other things, and I wasn't, I didn't have support from them. So freelancing seemed like a good way to go because I wanted to be a journalist. So I read it, started writing a lot for the college paper, and it was a very good paper. And it was weekly. So there was a lot of writing to do. And not just silly stuff. I mean, big, long, major features. At the end of two years, I had a lot of clips and substantial clips, at which point I felt confident, whether I should have or not, to approach <laughs> magazine. I was in the media capital. So it's, you know, it's as though I was going to an NYU and could toddle down the street to Condé Nast or Hearst. Would they yeah. have let a 19-year-old in the door? I don't know. They did in Toronto. And thank God that they did. Um, and I would, you know, go to, I would get a meeting and maybe I didn't look or say I'm 19, I don't know. And I'd walk in with a, a big, long list of ideas, like like multiple pages, single spaced. And I would just go down the list until they said yes, which is really not <laughs> probably like the way to go. But I had read the magazines. I mean, I hadn't walked in cold, you know, that would be yeah. stupid. Um, and obviously, you know, it was clear I knew how to write. I had the clips to prove it. Um, I knew how to present myself in a professional way, which some people struggle with, and I can understand why. You know, it's nervous-making. You're talking to people basically your parents' age. Um, but if if you're passionate and smart and have some skills, you're halfway there. You know, if you can yeah. get in the door and let – if somebody's willing to give you, you know, 15 or 20 minutes, then go. You know, you can't hold back or I'm not ready or I have imposter syndrome. I hate that phrase. So a lot of it was just knowing and having the proof, I have some skills. And then thank heaven for editors who said, okay, here's an assignment. Here's another one. Um, I was doing a lot of work. By my third year of university, I did not study journalism. I've never studied journalism. Editors were willing to edit. You know, things are very different now. Uh, and it's really much more difficult for younger women, I think, starting out in their 20s, editors are really busy, they're overworked, they're overwhelmed, and in no disrespect, a lot of them don't have the same experience. So you're not being edited by somebody who has 20, 30, 40 years experience to guide you to say, mm, this lead doesn't work, this kicker isn't great, uh, where's your nut graph, 
you know, whatever. Um, yeah. They were willing to teach me without it being an explicit lesson, believe me. I mean, I, would get, I got my first major magazine manuscript back in the days, <laughs> hold your breath, on typewriters, um, and the entire manuscript was covered in red circles. I've never forgotten it. And the word is was circled in red. In other words, don't do that. So a lot of it, let's face it, it's the same skills everybody needs in their 20s, being willing to learn, being willing to take feedback, not have a sulk, not freak out, not crawl under the covers and cry, oh, my God, I failed. No, it's feedback. And one of the people I worked for, and we are still friends, was a very tough editor. And she would get on the phone. Yes, we would speak on the phone. Very old-fashioned technology. Um, And she would, you know, tell me what was wrong. And I'm not a person who cries, and I would sometimes end up in tears. But I wouldn't quit. I wouldn't say, oh, my God, I suck. No. I'm learning. I'm learning. She's teaching me things I need to know. She edits a national magazine. I don't, you know. Um, And was just really grateful. Like, hey, I'm getting paid to learn. That is just an extraordinary gift. Um, And, yeah, I'm not Pollyanna. Sometimes it hurt. And, frankly, yeah, I blew it once, once, and only once. uh, I had gotten an assignment from the magazine I sold the cover photographs to to do a story. And I was still at, at college and, you know, trying to juggle a full course load and freelancing and living alone. Um, and I just sort of missed the deadline. And I called the editor and they were scathing. And that was the end of that. And that's a very powerful lesson. You don't get a second chance yeah. in, that, in that world. You know, you can't, you know, the dog didn't eat your homework. You're done. And right. Toronto's a small town, as are most, you know, media locations. I don't really care if it's New York or not. People will remember and go, well, she sucks. And and a million people are ready to take your place and do it better. So that was a sad but very important lesson to learn at a very early age. I hadn't even graduated. And it was like, okay, I won't do that again. And I don't think, seriously, in my life, I don't think I've missed a deadline since. I've gone to the hospital to avoid missing a deadline. I mean, it was bad. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I think that's really important to know. And, again, I was lucky to start learning those lessons literally in 19, 20, 21, freelancing. I kept getting the opportunities to do the work. And it's like anything. The more opportunities that you that you get, if you do it successfully, you have more clips, you have a bigger network, you have more confidence. You say, wow, I can make money at this. I can do this. And then you just go, if you want to keep doing it, you go do more of it. I mean, I don't mean to oversimplify, but that's kind of what it is, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. Just... Yeah, that's great. I think a big key is just keeping, you know, like saying yes over and over. And also it was interesting what you were saying about deadlines. I just feel like a big part of your 20s is realizing that people's time is very precious. Oh, God, yeah. And managers and editors, they have a lot more going on than those of us in our 20s. Um, yeah. It's really, like, be respectful of that. Okay, so you're freelancing and you're in school. Yeah. How did you land that first newspaper job? So I wanted one thing only, and that was to be a reporter at the Globe and Mail, which is, again, the big national daily in Canada. Yeah. Um, it, it it was the most prestigious thing you could get, and it's like the time. And uh, I hadn't studied journalism, and I hadn't gone to day school, and that's, really, you know, kind of a lot to ask. But I started freelancing for them, and I had a column. I had a weekly newspaper column when I was an undergrad. It was really wow. fun. It was a shop. It was a shopping column, 
And I was sort of poetic and playful and had a really good time with it. I made some really good money. So the point was they got to know me and they got to know my work and they got to see she hits her deadlines, she writes well, she can write on lots of things, she's reliable, she can be a pain in the ass, but she's good at what she does. So um, I applied every year. Like the geese flying south in the winter, every year I applied at the Globe, starting at the age of 18. That's a little young to apply to a national newspaper. But, you know, I'm not easily deterred. And every year they're like, no thanks, no thanks, no thanks. Well, finally, I've graduated college. I'm freelancing for a couple of years. I'm getting bored. The problem with freelance is there's really no milestones, you know, unless you're writing for, like, the New York Times Magazine, which is very difficult for most people. Um, You know, once you've kind of done it for a while, you're like, "Mm, what else is there? The money was fine. I I wasn't desperately broke. I, You know, Toronto wasn't that expensive. Anyway, um, I heard about a fellowship that was, absolutely life-changing, and I won it, and I went to France, to Paris, for a year. It was eight months, and there were 28 journalists from 19 countries, so Ghana, and Japan, and New Zealand, and England, and Canada, um, and Italy. We're still friends, some of us. It was an amazing, amazing year, and I had just turned 25, and it was for journalists aged 25 to 35, and we had to go off and do reporting trips all across Europe alone, uh, we had to do four 10-day trips. Now, you're 25, you're going off to Sicily. I don't speak Italian. Uh, you're going off to Denmark. I don't speak Danish. You're going off to, you know, Holland. Wow. I don't speak Dutch. And that's what you do. That is what the fellowship required of you. You really had to come, even at 25, armed with a pretty thick basket of stuff. And, again, really only two of us were that age. Everybody else was, you know, older. The oldest were mm-hmm. 35 years old. Some of them were married and had kids. Um, so I think two of Was us that were intimidating? Uh, to be in sort of like the younger cohort? I don't remember. Here's what I felt, and I'm, you know, be very honest with you. <laughs> this is crazy. I cried really, really, really hard the day that that plane left. And I cried not out of fear that I couldn't do it, but out of fear that I knew that when I stepped on the plane, my life would change forever, that I was yeah. going to return a totally different person. I had no idea who she would be. (laughs) I was living behind my apartment, my dog, my boyfriend, my friends, my family, my career, everything, everything. Bye, Mm -hmm. see ya for eight months. That's pretty terrifying. I don't care how old you are. Um, Because I had well-established, even by 25, I had a well-established career. And now I'm going, see ya, I'm out of here. I wanted out as a boyfriend. I wanted out of the apartment. I very deliberately wanted an exit strategy from that life. I was very bored and frustrated. So this was perfect. So in fact, I wasn't as so much intimidated as really excited. But yeah, sure, a little nervous. Good Lord. I mean, you're really, you're just stepping into this wholly unknown world. You are, you know, now a fellow inside a fellowship. You haven't met the fellows. You haven't. I recently had a similar experience this summer and fall when traveling for work and feeling scared. What if these people don't like me? And what if I say something stupid? And then I realized that underneath that anxiety was an even bigger fear. What if I never had these kind of experiences or opportunities? When I get nervous about having to take a big step, I always try to remember that even scarier than change is, well, not changing. If you are a decent, ethical, generous person, you make friends anywhere you go. And the fellows, we're still friends, some of us. We're still decades later. We're emailing, we're Facebooking, we've met each other's kids. I've stayed with their home, you know, their homes in other countries. And it's extraordinary. So anyway, the point of the story is I come off of this fellowship and I apply it to the globe again. (laughs) 
Now I have the halo of a fellowship. And more to the point, there was a shift in leadership at the paper. And finally somebody was taking over, a totally new managing editor. That's usually how you get hired. New people want their staff. And, yeah. um, but again, and this is again, you know, the paying of the dues. And nobody wants to hear that. I'm going to say it loud. Pay your dues. So I went into the paper, having, you know, freelanced for years. They knew me, right? And I went in to see the guy who was the sports editor. But rumor has it, have a good network. My network told me he's about to take over the paper. And I went in and I said, so I want to write for you. Like, I've been writing for the Globe and I want to write for you. He goes, so what do you know about hockey? I said, nothing. I've never watched a hockey game, which is unheard of for a Canadian. What? Right. And I said, I don't know anything about hockey. And he said, we're sending you to the Winnipeg Jets training camp. Okay, so that's a training camp for a professional hockey team. I wouldn't know an offset. I wouldn't know a blue line if it hit me. And unbeknownst to me, the guy who was doing public relations for the team used to work for our paper, my old paper, and hated them. I'm the only woman except for the secretary, and he refuses to even give me a press kit. And when I say to him, hi, I need a press kit, I need to know the names of the players, I need some information, he said, I'm all out. And he's sitting in a room smoking and drinking with all the male writers. I mean, it was really rough. You don't seem like a person who is intimidated. So what did you do? Well, I had a great time. I'll tell you exactly what I did. And God bless an editor with a sense of humor. And I came back, and this is the lead that I wrote. We're going back a long way. And my lead said, remember when you were little and the boys built a tree for it that said, girls keep out, period, paragraph, welcome to a hockey training camp. So basically what I was saying to these guys was a big F you. I noticed, I saw it, and I'm putting it in a national paper. And then I wrote just a really fun, lively story about the kids that I met. And I still remember some of their names. They were really nice young boys, one of whom was so talented he could have chosen either baseball or hockey, one of whom had severe hearing impairment, very interesting guys. And I just wrote what I saw. And I realized very quickly, and I still do this, that sounds really counterintuitive. Okay, you can't be stupid. You need to be really curious and smart. But sometimes not knowing a lot about the subject is a great strength because you ask all the questions people are scared to ask or you see things that other people don't even notice anymore. So in a weird way, they did the right thing by throwing me into that. So I did that. They really liked it. So then they said, okay, now... (laughs) Now we want you to profile the owner of the Maple Leafs hockey team. Okay, more hockey. Now, this this is a guy who hated the Globe so much, you couldn't go into the building. So I couldn't watch anybody play. I couldn't speak to him. So now I have to write a profile. No pressure. Not a big deal. So I found, like, I don't know, 25 people who knew him who would talk. And they liked the piece so much, they were going to put it on the front page of the paper. And at that point, they're like, okay, here's the job. And they hired me, and I did a great job. I shouldn't say that, but I did. I broke national stories. I got to cover uh, a provincial election in French. I had never worked in French. I had never covered an election anywhere. They just kept throwing me into the deep end, and I would go home, and I would cry. I would sit in the bathtub, I lived alone, and I would just cry and go, I'm going to fail. I am going to fuck this up, pardon my language. Uh, and I wouldn't, because the rational part of my lizard brain said, no. They think you're good. They're giving you a chance. Go prove them right. 
but I was so lucky. Every time I was given one of these chances, it was like, Jesus, go. You know, it's like the horse, get the bit in your mouth and run. Because you don't always get those opportunities. And I think sometimes when you're younger, you don't understand, this is an opportunity. You better run because you might not get it again. Mm -hmm. You you know, you can't be scared of it. You can't go, oh, I don't know how to do that. Well, Google it, you know, call a friend, read a book. You know, I to Caitlin's point to about being given opportunities and saying yes and just Googling the things you don't know how to do, I 100% agree. But I just want to take this a step further and say, don't wait around for someone to give you a chance because you might be waiting an awfully long time. Editors are busy. So think about a project or a story or some reporting or a book that you've always wanted to do and just go for it. I basically had to Google everything to make life TK. I didn't know what I was doing at all. And this project isn't the worst. Don't worry about what you're going to do before you're done with it. Don't worry about if you can even finish it. You'll figure it out. I still get nervous every time I have to do some Life TK related thing. And I take a break. And I eat a brownie. And yeah, I cry in the bathtub. And then I just do it. Is that healthy? No. God, no. But the work gets done. project this week and I've you know kind of been doing this a long time I'm nervous not because I'm incompetent it's a big project and there's a lot of pressure on me to make this good so my point is I think you should always be nervous you shouldn't dismiss it as oh I'm 20 I'm nervous I won't be nervous when I'm 30 guess what (laughs) (laughs) you can be nervous at 70 because Uh, I think and this is this is really important if you really care about what you're doing it's not a lack of confidence if you care so much and you want to do a really good job. And, you know, my husband won a Pulitzer Prize for the time. I mean, he's a major player. And mm-hmm. it was a team Pulitzer for photo editing, and it's on our desk. We are still nervous. And we've been this for years. We've won awards. We've done all the right things because we want to be really good at what we do. So to go back to the, your point, like, how did you get the first newspaper job? Frankly, doing exactly what I do today, bringing the same standards, the same passion, the same intensity, um, the same, you know, sort of fire in the belly that says, Christ, you better make this good. It's not going to be adequate. It's not going to be mediocre. It sure as hell isn't going to be average. It it needs to be amazing. And I'm not saying it will be. I'm not trying to be arrogant and say it is. But the goal is, if it's it's nearly average, why bother? Because there's a million people out there you're competing with. Let them be average. (laughs) Yeah. And yet... And yes, I'm very competitive. I've, you know, I've been a competitive athlete in a couple of sports, um, and that's a really helpful thing because, you know what, sometimes you lose. Sometimes you get injured. And so what? You're like, okay, fine. And it, it, it's very, very confidence-building because you realize not everything, you know, you're not going to go home with a medal every time, right? And again, I know for some younger people that's a shock. <laughs> my point is don't focus endlessly on you know, metrics of success. Like, I have to do this and then I'm successful, right? Because that's just, don't make yourself insane. You really will. And I did. I did. I used to drive my editors nuts when I didn't make front page. And I was way too driven. And I admit that. I was way too ambitious. I was very driven. I didn't have much of a life. Didn't have a husband. Didn't have kids. Didn't have boyfriends. 
You know, it was just kind of work, 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 work. That's not healthy. And a lot of people do that. A lot of people think, that's what I need to do. I need to burn myself out to impress everybody. And I think it's the reverse. I think you need to go home and pat your dog and go to a movie and eat some ice cream. Because yeah. if you make if you make your work the sole focus of your value, of your income, of your everything, right? Your status, oh, my, you know, my best friend works at the Washington Post. Fine. You're not her. Right, and it's, right. it's even at my level. It's very easy to look at all the other people who are doing so much more than I am. Whatever, you know. If my goals are paid. If if I'm meeting my goals, don't don't focus on everybody else, because you don't know. To be very blunt, they may have a really great tailwind. In other words, a lot of help, and you might mm-hmm. have some really big headwinds. And people really forget that that the people who are rocketing ahead of you. You know, who knows? Maybe mommy's paying their rent. Maybe they don't have student loans. Maybe they're in perfect health and you suffer from anxiety. Like, just, you know, you have to be, I think, a much kinder to yourself than a lot of young women are. Caitlin and I had this conversation pre-Matt Lauer and Charlie Rose allegations coming to light. So I feel like this is a good place to pause and recognize that if 2017 and Me Too have taught us anything, it's that, yes... We often don't know what advantages our fellow women writers are being given. And we also don't often know what obstacles they're up against. So I have to hope that we'll continue to share those experiences and work to make offices better and safer for women. And I also want to say that as a white woman, I recognize that it's about a million times harder for women of color. We can't have these conversations without recognizing that some of us have privileges that the rest don't, and that's not fair. Not everybody's succeeding all the time. They say they are doesn't mean they are, you know, um, and that's social media has made it so much worse. I mean, when I come up in my twenties, it didn't exist. Like I would meet people at parties and I could see their violence, but I didn't. It wasn't daily, you know, tweeting every thirty seconds like, oh, look what I just did, like whatever, you know. Um, yeah. And the other piece of it is, and don't hate me. I hate the expression "lean in" so much. I want to like like throw that book out the window because I think it's created tremendous pressure on people who are already really pressured. You know, we got big student loans, it's a difficult economy, and now you're supposed to be like Sheryl Sandberg and wear like an $8,000 dress and look like you never sweat. Then that's yeah. not fair. That's not fair. You know, yeah. I mean, talk about advantages. What does she make a year? Jesus. You know, how many yeah. nannies has she got? I mean, and God forbid, you know, she lost her husband, which is terrible. But, you know, having said that, you know, again, you've got, there's a great expression. You've probably heard it. Never compare your inside to somebody else's outside. And it's really no, I've never heard that. I heard it at a conference in my 20s, and I never forgot it. And it's really important because we compare our shaky, nervous, insecure insides, and we all have them with other people's polished, well, outsides. They're showing you the facade. It might be true. It might not. It might be 10% yeah. of who they are. Right. You're just seeing me. You're seeing the, You're not seeing the inside. You're not seeing, unless you're really good friends, right? That's why, friend, to me, friendship is the single most important thing because with your friends, you are truthful. They are truthful with you. You know that everybody struggles, and then you all get up the next morning and do it again. But if you're having a really crappy day, you know, you call your friend, and thank God for the Internet. You can Skype your friend in New Zealand or Germany or wherever she yeah. happens to be. So a lot of it is not saying, I have to look like this person or sound like this person, but really having, I think, a posse, like in the classic sense of like people who have your back, you know, not 20 people, three or four that you really trust, and everybody else, they're charming acquaintances, 
and you need them for work, and you need them for your network, and you need them to measure, you know, like all the things we need, yeah. like all the LinkedIn, the LinkedIn crowd, right? And those are important. But your friends, you know, I had a moment when I turned in my second book, and it needed a lot of revision, a lot, to the degree that I was just like, okay, this is not going to happen. Yeah. And I'm happy to say that publicly because the book came out of got nice reviews, thank God. But I was very, very <clears throat> concerned with the amount of work that they were asking me to do. Not, I don't want to do it. I didn't think I could. Now, I'm talking yeah. decades into a career. So who am I? And it's like, well, what do you mean you didn't know? I hadn't written a book like that before. I'd written a yeah. book, a totally different book. And I had a very, very good friend. And I called him up, and I was like having a panic attack to some degree. And he was just like, you can do this. And not in a dismissive way, but just like, mm-hmm. of course you can do this. But that's somebody that I know has my back and is not blowing smoke at me. Again, I'm going to be probably unkind. I'm not thrilled when people say, you got this. You don't know if she has it. Like, I don't think that's a helpful thing to say to somebody because you don't know that they have it. It's a nice idea. I understand the general cheerleading impulse. It's a good thing. But a true friend might take you aside and say, you know what? Your interviewing skills aren't fabulous. Let's do some practice interviews if you're going to get a job or if you're interviewing people for stories and you're not getting the results. Hey, can you get some coaching to do your interviews better? Like, just make sure that you are as strong as you need to be. I'm seeing a lot of cheerleading, which I love, but I don't know that it's always quite as helpful as it could be because sometimes somebody needs to take you aside and say, uh, this sucks. You're not, yeah. This is not your strong point. I actually have an interesting theory about that because one of the things that I really like doing Google searches on um, is the fact that there seems to be in the office like less mentoring going on than in previous generations. Oh, yeah, and I've blogged about this, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I feel like that that sort of ties into what we were talking about this idea of coaching, I just feel like no one has either like the time or the energy or the emotional intelligence to yep. give someone feedback that is constructive and like yep. well thought out. I feel like it's yep. a huge piece that's missing from our professional society. No, that's a, that's a great point. Um, I'm just going to be honest. I wasn't mentored by anybody. <laughs> In any yeah. meaningful way, nobody in my entire career took me aside and said, "Let me show you the robes there." Like, forget it. What I had, and again, it was a different time. I was very lucky. Editors edited. They had time. There was no internet. We weren't in this unholy rush to get things mm-hmm. up really fast. Um, there were people who had done their jobs for fifteen, twenty years. They were seasoned. I hate the word, but they were. And so they could teach me things. They did teach me things. Um, they learned, you know, a tremendous amount by doing a lot. Um, they gave me the opportunities to do that. But so it wasn't classic mentoring, but I kept learning and learning and learning from people who knew what they were doing. And the challenge now is, yeah, you have people who are busy, exhausted, overwhelmed. Um, you know, I don't think it really matters where you are in your career. Yes, when you're younger, you want it, you crave it. But yeah, I'm going to be very tough love in some ways. You just kind of have to, it's a very much self-directed industry. And, and I know people don't want that. I want to be mentored. I want to be taught. I want to get feedback. 
again, I think having a network of peers that you like and trust is really helpful. So, you know, if you're really crashing and burning, you can go to a friend and say, are you running into this? And maybe your friend's like two steps up the ladder from you professionally. You know, they get a little bit ahead of you. So they have some insight or they have some feedback for you. You can take classes. I I do coaching. I do webinars. I love doing it. You know, I think it's very helpful for people. Um, I've paid people in the last couple of months myself to coach me. I mean, at Mm -hmm. any stage, at any stage, you can just say, I don't know how to do this. How much do you charge an hour? And people, I sometimes my friends, and I'm very grateful, I've gone to friends a couple of times in the past few years and said, I need to learn X. And the first thing I say to them is, how much do you charge hourly? I do not say, can I pick your brain? I hate the phrase. I hate the phrase. And I wouldn't dare ask because my attitude is, you have bills, I have bills, you're a professional, and I'm going to pay you. Your doctor isn't free, your dentist isn't free, your hairdresser isn't free. Go pay for skill. And it shows respect. And I think that's a challenge. I know if you're younger, I don't have any money, oh, just stop. You know, just stop buying shoes for six months and go buy some really good coaching and some really great insight. If you're not getting it at work, I hate to say it, you're going to have to go buy it from somebody because nobody's just going to hand it to you. Some people will. Some people are very generous and some people have lots of time. You can't count on that. And so, yes, you'll get some mentoring and help from some people and that's great, but the expectation that it's going to come, I think, is very unfair and unrealistic. So I think it's fair to just sort of sit down and look at your annual budget and say I'm spending X on, you know, wedding presents, all my friends are getting married, I'm putting aside 500 bucks in a year, which is nothing over a year, to, yeah. to, go, to, to go to a conference, to pay for a coach, to take a class. I think that's such a good idea, and I don't know really why, you know, I would say, like, my gym membership is part of my mm-hmm. annual budget, but I never really yeah. think, I just kind of take classes as they come up. But I think that's yeah. a really wonderful idea to sit down whenever you're making your budget and be like, okay, you know, what am I spending on career development and actually invest in it? If you're looking for places to spend some money on professional development, here's a no-brainer. Learn from Caitlin by going to her website, CaitlinKelly.com, and taking one of her webinars. I just got interviewed for um, Vice Money in Canada. Oh, uh, cool. Same thing. Yeah, and it's a woman who I met at a conference, same thing. She was in the audience that day. Lovely young woman, smart as hell, Canadian, from Toronto. So we have that in common. Yeah. Um, and she interviewed me about freelancing. Uh, and when she emailed me, I could have said, no, I don't want to. Right? But, yeah. But it helps me. It helps her. It gets me on I mean, like, I don't see that there's a downside to that. And frankly, yeah, I am helping. I'm being a source. I'm giving her a long interview. I don't have to do it. Yes, it gives me some visibility. Well, you know, nobody called me the next day to say, oh, here's a big assignment. Like, right. you know, so frankly, in some ways, I think that is mentoring, like the offer to be a source. Like it doesn't look like mentoring. You're still being helpful in your own yeah. way. Yeah, totally. You know, and, often, and often we'll have a conversation as you and I do, you know, or are, and I'm happy to do that, which is more personal. That's fine. Yeah. Once you've got the person, yeah, like, you know. Maybe that's kind of like the future of mentoring is like micro-mentoring, you know, like being a source. Oh, I like that. I like yeah. that. That's, oh, that's, a, that's a good podcast. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start this movement. Now, that's really interesting because what you're really saying is I respect your time. I'm not going to take up three hours of like, oh, I don't know what to do, tell me. But right. you're going to like, can I have 10 minutes? And it'll be 10 minutes. And if they like you and you know this, it'll end up being like a lot more. 
but you promised ten minutes, and then of course you write a thank you note on paper with a stamp, which nobody ever does, right? All that stuff. And the larger lesson is, you know, let people get to know you. I think that's the takeaway because, if, you know, it's one thing to say, "How did you do X?" It's not really replicable. Um, I yeah. think the larger thing is, you know, what did you do that worked, right? And what I did that worked is they got to know me, you know, more to know. Um, and they see, you know, they see that you're reliable. They see that they like you. They see that you don't wear the wrong clothes, you know, the drill. Yeah. Um, that you're somebody that they can see in their office, literally. Um, and, yes, you do need a rabbi, and, yes, you need some luck. I mean, there's no question. You know, you just because you want it doesn't mean it'll happen. You have to be patient. Special thanks to Caitlin for her time and insights. I loved this episode. Yes, there was some tough love in it, which is always appreciated, and I hope you liked it and appreciated it too. Okay, that's it for now. Please follow the podcast on Twitter at LifeTK Podcast and on Instagram at Life underscore TK. Subscribe to my newsletter by going to LifeTK.com, scrolling down to the bottom of the About page and clicking Updates. Search for me on Facebook and like that page as well, please. Oh, and you can find Caitlin on Twitter at CaitlinKellyNYC. And once again, her website is CaitlinKelly.com. Thanks, guys. See you next time.